Blackerby will preach in Hunden pulpit when you are crying in hell. Child, grandson, if thou hast any acquaintance with God, pray for me, that God would purify this filthy heart. Certainly he belongs with the high-ranking clergy of his day, yet his convictions and principles drive him to be in a lower estate. He remains an ejected minister who has no church to call his home. Richard Blackerby was a learned and holy divine who was born at Worlington in Suffolk in the year 1574. He was educated at Trinity College, Cambridge, where he sat under the ministry of the famous Mr. Perkins, by means of whose preaching he was effectually converted to God. For several years, he labored under the most painful awakenings of conscience, approaching almost to melancholy. However, later he found peace with God and enjoyed comfort in his soul through faith in Jesus Christ, which he never lost to his dying day. Upon his leaving the university, he became a domestic chaplain, first to Sir Thomas German of Rushbrook, then to Sir Edward of Denham. It was here at Denham when he married the daughter of Mr. Timothy Oldman, minister of Denham, whose father was greatly persecuted and at length forced to abscond in the days of Queen Mary. When called to preach at Feltwell in Norfolk, he was obliged to remove to Ashton in Essex on account of his nonconformity to the Church of England. For 23 years, he was employed in the education of youth. Some of his students in Essex became scholars of considerable eminence, of which was Dr. Bernard. It was Dr. Bernard who recommended Richard Blackerby to be a high-ranking member within the National Church. However, on account of his continued nonconformity, a whopping 23 years later, he could not with a good conscience accept it. Instead, he constantly preached at one place or another as he found opportunity. Now, one thing to point out at this juncture in his biography is his humble acceptance of the consequences of remaining in nonconformity. I mean, just imagine being a man of high intelligence, having a high reputation, especially being a pupil under the popular William Perkins, and now being subjected to no longer associating with Mr. Perkins, rather to be associated with the education of youth. Certainly he belongs with the high-ranking clergy of his day, yet his convictions and principles drive him to be in a lower estate. He remains an ejected minister who has no church to call his home. The historian Mr. Clark writes, quote, during his long life, he never seemed to lose a moment of time in idleness. A wise man, he spent all of his leisure hours in providing for immortality. He rose early both winter and summer and spent the whole day in reading, meditation, prayer, and the instruction of others. He was remarkably punctual and conscientious in the observation of family worship. He instructed his pupils daily in true Christian piety and useful learning and walked before them continually in wisdom, love, and true holiness. Young students upon their leaving the university put themselves under his tuition to be further prepared for public ministry, to whom he taught Hebrew, he opened the scriptures, read divinity, and gave excellent instruction relative to learning, doctrine, and future life." Unquote. In his public ministry, when he was suspended in one place, he fled to another. By this means, though he lived in hard times, he was seldom kept silent for any considerable period. His preaching was accompanied with so abundant an outpouring of the Spirit that he had reason to believe God made him the spiritual father of above 2,000 persons. Indeed, the word of God falling from his lips soon became the savor of life unto life to those who heard it or 
they became enraged by it. And though persons of seared conscience sometimes became violently outrageous against his preaching, the signal judgments of God commonly found them out. At Hunden, he met with considerable opposition from principal persons who united together and procured his suspension. But those same people afterward were blasted in their estates. Some were brought to beggary and all except one died miserable deaths. In fact, the story goes that the Sabbath after his suspension, one of the unsettlers was boasting in the churchyard that they now had got Blackerby out of the pulpit. To which a woman standing by hearing him say this replied, quote, Blackerby will preach in Hunden pulpit when you are crying in hell, unquote. In the very Sabbath after this man was buried, Mr. Blackerby obtained his liberty and preached on that day in Hunden pulpit. Now, Richard Blackerby wasn't enraging people because he had no social skills or was inherently rude. He was known to be a wise, affectionate, and faithful friend. However, he never suffered sin to pass unreproved. Whether that be those sins in his own life, the life of his family, the life of his church, or the life of his community, the reality that Mr. Blackerby was principally committed to confront sin is a sure way to get a reprobate enraged. However, to the saints, they will be encouraged. In fact, many whom he reproved still loved him because of the manifested love, seriousness, and sweetness of spirit that emanated from his tongue. One person observes, quote, his reproves were dipped in oil driven into the heart and received with all acceptance because of the overcoming kindness with which they were attended." Unquote. When he was in the company with persons of wealth and heard them swear and use profane language, he would withdraw from their company with a sad countenance and would address them in private with so much affection and seriousness that they would frequently thank him. One gentleman said, quote, had you reproved me at the table, I would have stabbed you. But now, I thank you." Unquote. Mr. Blackerby's whole deportment was as if God, his holy law, and the day of judgment were constantly before his eyes. He was deeply impressed with the majesty and holiness of God and maintained constant watchfulness over his heart and life. He practiced mortification and self-denial and was justly named one of the holiest men living. Though he was deeply humbled under a sense of his manifold infirmities and imperfections, this he often expressed to a grandchild. Really, he confessed to his grandchild, saying, quote, Oh, thou little thinkest of what vile heart I have, and how I am plagued with proud thoughts. Child, grandson, if thou hast any acquaintance with God, pray for me, that God would purify this filthy heart. Oh, if God would not enable me in some measure to keep watch over it, I should act to the shame of my face. Unquote. While he brought these bitter accusations against himself, he exercised the greatest candor towards others, even those who differed from him in matters of subscription and church discipline. He affirms with what famous Mr. Perkins once said, quote, that when a man is acquainted with his own heart, he will be apt to think everyone better than himself, and an appearance of the love of God in any will make him put the best construction on all their words and actions." Unquote. Perhaps you might be the type of person who quickly assumes wrong motives, bad intentions when a fellow Christian does something that rubs you the wrong way. 
may I encourage you to agree with William Perkins and Mr. Richard Blackerby and to assume the best in all their words and actions because their appearance of the love of God. If you consider them a brother or a sister in Christ, you ought to assume the best and move forward in either covering their apparent offense in love or confronting their apparent offense in love. Either way, whatever you do and how you handle your brother or sister, do it with charity and love. Mr. Blackerby was crucified to the world and the world was crucified to him. He lived above the world having his affection set on better things. When his eldest daughter, whom he loved dearly, was taken away by death, he preached her funeral sermon with the utmost composure and said he believed she feared God from three years old. He preached as a man who had not lost his God, though he had lost his dearest child. The love of the creature could never draw his heart from the Creator. He enjoyed the abundant manifestations of God's love and was accompanied with such a settled peace in his conscience that he had a full assurance of eternal life. He often declared before his death that for more than 40 years, he never had a single doubt of his salvation. In the year 1646, at the age of whopping 74, which is extremely old for that era, Mr. Blackerby died. At his death, he expressed his strong hopes that in the day of judgment, there would be many hundreds of his children standing at the right hand of Christ. And it is said that those who knew his children believed they were all heirs of eternal life. There were favorable hopes of all his grandchildren, many of whom were eminent persons, and many of his great-grandchildren were truly pious Christians. Now, I want to recall earlier what we've said about Mr. Blackerby in this biography when he was named one of the holiest men living. And remember that he confessed his sin, his unseen sin, to his grandchild. Mr. Blackerby had an understanding that it is his children and his children's children and his children's children's children who must understand that Christ is preeminent and he is not. He brought himself to appear ugly before his grandchild, and no doubt to his kids, so that Christ could look more beautiful than the emanating light that beamed from Mr. Blackerby's person. Also note, Mr. Blackerby asked for prayer from his grandchild, and acknowledged the fact that the only way the child could help him is if he knew God. Being labeled a holy man is surely tested by the outcome of his posterity, and indeed he passed with flying colors. It is said that on account of the heavenly majesty and holiness which attended Mr. Blackerby, the excellent Mr. Daniel Rogers of Wethersfield used to say he could never come into his presence without trembling.